Well, if you'd open your Bibles up to Philippians chapter 4. We're jumping out of our regular series on uh, 2 Samuel this week because this is our kickoff Sunday. So we're looking at a little, a little different passage. Now, like any passage, to understand this uh, passage in Philippians 4, we need to kind of understand its context. So I want us to think a little bit about the book of Philippians for a minute. So get ready to flip a few pages. Philippians uh, is written to a little church trying to stand for Jesus in a hostile world. Much like today, the culture under Roman rule and Hellenistic influence was full of idolatry and hostility, really, to Christianity and the gospel. To the point that living for Jesus, especially standing for him, could get you in a lot of trouble. In fact, Paul is writing this letter to this church from prison in Rome, where he's been imprisoned for his proclaiming of the gospel. And so Paul has one main reason for writing this letter. And this is it. He is writing this to encourage and exhort the Christians in Philippi to stand strong as gospel partners. He's writing to encourage them to stand strong as gospel partners. Flip over to chapter 1, and I want to show you this real quick. Look at chapter 1, verse, verse 3. Let me put my glasses on here. This is what it says. Just after greeting them, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. These guys have been his gospel partners from the day they got saved. And they're still going at it with him. And he's so thankful for them, all of them being his gospel partners. Now look at verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That's not a personal statement, that's a corporate statement. The good work of the gospel partnership that he's began with them, that they're doing together, he's going to bring it to completion. He's going to do that work. Now look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, you all, all of you, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers, that's that partner's word, you're all partners with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He loves these guys because they are partnered up with him in the gospel of grace through thick and thin, through whatever may come to the very end. I love this beginning. I love this book. This is what I want our church to be about. Gospel partnership. This was the first book I preached when I took over as senior pastor here because I want this to be the DNA of our church. We've all been brought into the family of God by Christ and his, his, his work in our lives. And now we grow and get built up and get equipped and we get to go out with the gospel together. Gospel partnership. Those two words are both very significant. Gospel, right? 
It's the good news of the life, death, and and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which brings us not only forgiveness, but resurrection life. But then partners, gospel partners. That's the koinonia word. We tend to think of it as, as fellowship. It gets translated. But fellowship a lot of times sounds like just hanging out and having coffee together. Partnership's a better word. When you say people are partners in something, they're partners in a business, you know that they're both in, they're full in, 100%, both of them working at it together. It requires a focused unity. And Paul will spend the next few chapters stressing this unity and teasing out what it means. In verse, uh, look at, flip the page to 1 verse 27, while you flip the page in my Bible. And this is where you get like the theme verse of the Bible. Uh, of, excuse me, of Philippians. This is what he says, chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponent. He says, if you guys want to stand strong in this hostile world, if you want to be effective in the work of the gospel, whether I'm around or not, your lives need to be linked up, arm to arm, striving side by side. Your spirits and your minds need to be striving together like soldiers in battle. You need to work in the unity that you have in Christ. And then in the next chapters, he just goes and he He teases that out. He talks about the humility of Christ and the unity they have. But when we get to chapter 4, our text for this morning, we find this really uh, specific, real-world application of what he's been saying. Because there's these two women in the church, probably some of the very initial members we know in Macedonia there were some early on there were some women that got saved probably the the very core founders of this church and uh, these two women are struggling with each other they were gospel partners they were united together but now they aren't some division has crept in look at verse two and three he says this I I entreat Iodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, it's probably the elder over the church, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Iodia and Syntyche have had a disagreement some type of fight. And we don't, we're not told what it's about, but I can tell you it's not about some primary doctrinal issue because if it was, Paul would have taken it head on like he always does. It is a secondary issue. Something so insignificant that Paul doesn't even need to mention what it is. It's probably like one of those fights you have where by the end of it you can't remember what you started fighting about. But it has brought a real rift between them, so much so that the whole church knows about it. So much so that it's gotten back to him in Rome where he's in prison. 
and it has sidetracked them from the gospel work. He said they had been working side by side together, but they're not now. This secondary thing has gotten in the way of their main task as believers united in Christ. So Paul calls them out. And I want you to imagine that moment, okay? Both of Yodia and Syntyche have showed up to church that morning to the gathering. Perhaps they exchanged kind of curt, awkward pleasantries and then when sat in their places on the other side of the room from each other. But everybody's excited this morning, this morning because Epaphroditus has brought a letter from Paul. And he's going to read it out to the whole congregation. And he's reading this letter to the congregation, and, and, and it's talking about their unity in Christ and their work of the gospel, and for him to die is, is gain, and you can hear the amens. And then he gets to this part. He calls out in the middle of the letter, Yodia and Syntyche by name, and asks everybody in the church to help them work out their issue. This would be like me preaching along about unity and the gospel and then suddenly stopping and saying, by the way, you guys need to help Andrew and Jay. They were doing great. But uh, yeah, it's tension in the office and you guys need to help them work this out for the sake of the gospel. Or to use another example, let's say Robin and Darlene. Oh man, the office staff, it's bad. I called them, see if I called some them out by name. Now, nothing is going on between any of them, not a problem. But let's say I did that. It would get quiet in here. Their eyes would be probably looking at the floor. It seems like a really harsh approach, but you see, it's that important. It must be addressed, and everybody is called to deal with it. And you know, it's that important today, right now. Our church, CTR, I think, has, is and has been over this year at a Yodica and Syntyche moment. We are at a time when a spirit of division can easily slip in and has. We've been striving side by side, moving along for the gospel, but this whole COVID thing has come and people have started to disagree over masks and vaccines and politics. And it's not just our church. It's almost every church out there. I can tell you lots of stories. And it can easily sidetrack us. And this isn't primary stuff. As passionate as we may be about it and our positions on it, this is secondary stuff that can get in the way of the gospel, of gospel partnership, of the main thing. And I get it. These are not unimportant things. They do matter, and we should care and think about them, but we can't let them get in the way. We can't let them divide us. It's exactly what the devil wants. And it's so easy right now to get confused the whole world is encouraging us to take a side, to take a stand, to point the, figure at the uh, finger at the other side and disparage the other side. Everybody's saying, who are you with? Whose side are you on? What's your group? Where do you stand? You want to know? Well, I'll tell you. 
we are with Jesus, we are on his side. Our group is his church, his body. That's our group. And we stand for the gospel. And when it comes to all the other stuff, we need to, as Russ Branham once said when he preached on this very passage, and it's what I took my title from, we need to build a bridge and get over it. We need to build a bridge and get over it. It's very important. So how do we do that? How do we foster our partnership? How do we stay focused on the gospel and and strive at unity? Well, Paul gives them, it's very interesting, he gives them three exhortations here to help them live out their gospel unity. And he, he addresses that issue, and then right off the back of it, he just starts exhorting them. And he gives them these three exhortations that I want us to look at. They're very simple. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. That's just so funny. Right off the back of, hey, there's a problem with these guys. You need to fix it. The next verse, rejoice, he says. Have joy now. It's a command. It's a double command there. Do it. It seems like a weird thing to command, right? How do you command people to, you know, have joy? I have a cousin. She's much younger than me. And I remember when we'd go to their house on a holiday, and my aunt was a little different and um, she would look at my little cousin, who was about three at the time, and we would show up, and she would say to her, her name was Lula, she would say, Lula, give love. Lula, give love. And she would kind of come over and hug your leg. And you'd be like, oh, wow. So it was weird. How do you command a subjective feeling? But that's the point. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about commanding a, a have a, a giddy feeling of ignorant bliss right now or a forced Sunday smile. He says rejoice in the Lord and who he is and what he's objectively done for them. It's that joy that's rooted deeper than our feelings and circumstances. It's in the very work of Christ in us and for us. He says, if you want to rise above this division and disunity, let go of those secondary things. Get back to the true joy. Remember it. Choose to reflect on and rest in the, the real joy, the joy of your salvation, the joy that's been brought to us in Christ. You know, what are some of the things? I was going to have you stop and flip through your Bibles, but, or flip through Philippians. Now, what are some of the things that Paul has been reminding them of in this book? Things that Christ has done and, and brought to their lives that should evoke real joy. Does anybody want to yell anything out? Anybody know something from Philippians that should bring joy? It's a theme in the book. It's all over the place. What are some things that he's reminding them about their relationship to Christ and what's happened in Christ that give them joy? Huh? Serve, serving others. He gives the example of Christ, right? The humility of Christ and how he serves us. The humility of Christ. Being lights in the world, the witness, the gospel partners. 
Citizenship in heaven. That's a pretty exciting thing. Think about that. As everybody's arguing today, think about where your real citizenship is. Frame, frame your, your opinions on things in, hey, you're upset with what's going on in this country? Oh, my citizenship is in heaven. That's a pretty joyous thing. How about imputed righteousness? That's what chapter 3 is about. In fact, let me read it. Let me read this little part. Just back at, he starts chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And the end of that section, this is what he says. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. How about that? Righteousness given to us in Christ, which brings resurrection life. That should bring real joy. Resurrection life, citizenship in heaven, so I can say, hey, for me, as Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Who gets to say that? Christians get to say that. Real joy. This is what Paul talks about just before this text and all throughout this book. Righteousness in Christ, resurrection life, citizenship in heaven. And then he tops it all off by telling us, hey, and you guys have the best job in the whole world, the job that will bring real, true significance to your life. You're in the family business of God, partnership in the gospel. It's a gospel work that God is doing in us and through us, and he promises that he's going to get it done in the end. That's some joyous stuff. And remember, Paul is not saying this tritely. He is not sitting in some castle writing to them about joy as he's, you know, fed grapes by his servants. He is writing from a filthy, dank Roman prison. He's writing to them with tears in his eyes, we're told, as he suffers. And he's writing to them about joy. An underlying joy. It's a joy that can be there even in suffering. It's a joy beyond circumstances that's rooted deep it's an always joy. Notice how he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, he's not talking about a giddy surface happiness, but that underlying, settled soul joy. That's why I read that little section from Apostle Peter, because he talks about the same thing. And I'll read the end of it. He, said, he says this, speaking of Christ, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. My friends, when we rejoice like this, when we know this joy, all the division and disparaging and blame shifting seems really, really petty. I can just see Yodia and Syntyche looking each other across the room as this is read and thinking, what have we been doing? This year, with all the shrill voices of the world working us up to take sides and the pressure to make secondary issues primary, let's keep our joy in Christ and be united in the gospel.
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's a command. And let's be obedient. Now, Paul's secondary exhortation, second exhortation here to help the Philippians overcome the kind of divisive ethos of these two women and stay on gospel task uh, comes in the next verse, verse 5. This is what he says. Another very simple one. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. What a crazy idea. If we're struggling with division and disunity over secondary matters, we need to be reasonable. I can't think of a more relevant admonition to the church right now. With all the extreme arguments and opinions that people are putting out there, positions and attitudes that leave no quarter to even consider what the other side is saying, but immediately paint them as an enemy. I can't think of a more relevant admonition than a call for reasonableness. Not a call to agree on everything, because that's not going to happen. But we are to be reasonable with each other. Each other. And note that he, he doesn't say, be reasonable just with each other. What does he say? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Scholars all agree that he's talking about the outside world there. Paul is saying that when people from the outside look at the church, they look at CTR, they should say, man, those people are reasonable. When they see how we interact, unlike the world, they should see a difference and go, look how they're reasonable with each other. And they're reasonable when we interact with them. This is so important. If we're going to be on gospel mission and we want people to give us a chance to reason through the gospel with us, but they see us being unreasonable about all these other issues, guess what? We've lost a hearing. And by the way, the Greek word behind this term translated reasonable here, it isn't just about being logical or being able to engage in rational uh, you know, debate, although it, I think it includes those things, but it's actually about our spirit, our attitude as we interact with each other and our differences. The same Greek word is translated sometimes gentle, be gentle, be kind, be yielding. It's even translated be tolerant. I think to sum it up, I would call this reasonableness a gentle graciousness. When people see us interacting as a body, do they see, do they hear gentle graciousness? When they interact with you, what do they experience? In the midst of everything that's going on, do they experience a gentle graciousness? Think of what a witness we can have right now as Christians just by being reasonable like this. When the world is screaming and demanding from both sides, 
when people are lashing out out of fear and self-protection, when all the media voices are harsh with vitriol, we are being gentle and gracious with each other, even as we disagree on, on things that are very important to us, but secondary. And of course, this should be our spirit, gentle graciousness. I mean, is that not our savior? Is this not the core of who he is and what we've received from him? The book that we're going to be studying at Men's Retreat is titled Gentle and Lonely. It's about the heart of Christ. Gentle and Lowly. It's about the heart of Christ. And it's, it's the only phrase that Christ ever uses to describe his own heart. You only get one description from Christ about his heart, and he describes it as gentle and lowly. And I'm going to apply this kind of specifically right now about being reasonable and gentle. Recently, Governor Inslee has asked, you know, the, the mask, he's made the mask mandate. He's asked while indoors that we wear masks. And we've decided as a church to comply with that. Why? Because science has proven him right? No. Because there's no good argument the other way? No. Because we just mindlessly do what the government tells us to do? No. To avoid the possibility of litigation against us? No. Why? Reasonableness. The governor has given lots of compromise. He hasn't asked for social distancing or screens in front of us or even the leaders up front to wear masks or caps on numbers. And the mandate is only for large groups while indoors. We need to be reasonable, gentle and gracious, yielding where we can be, like our Savior. Because we have a much bigger gospel purpose, gospel task in mind, don't we, that we are called to. So thus far, if we're going to strive side by side and not get distracted by secondary things and be on about the gospel, he says, be rejoicing in the Lord and be reasonable with each other. That's what the world should see. And note how those kind of work together. I think that rejoicing in the Lord uh, leads, the, the relational quality that comes out of that is a reasonableness, a gentle graciousness. But there's one last admonition here, halfway through verse 5. One more thing he adds. It's what he says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We must also be a people of prayer. We must be rejoicing, we must be reasonable, and we must be praying. Paul says to the Philippians, who live in a context at least as hostile and scary as the times we live in now, and who are struggling with each other and differences of opinion on what to do just like us, he says to them, don't start obsessively fretting. Don't expend your energies in worry. Put it all into prayer. 
take all of that energy, put that into prayer. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. He says, He's not far off. He's not uninvolved. He's not unaware. He's not involved in more important stuff. He's right here, right now, with us. Remember when we studied the book of Revelation? As he's about to address this, the churches, the letters to the seven churches, he throws out two images of Christ. One is him standing amongst the lampstands, and then he tells us, as this glorious figure, and then he tells us, the lampstands are the churches. He's standing with his churches. And one is him holding these seven stars in his hands, and he says, those are the angels that look over the seven churches. He says, he's with us, and by the way, he's got us. So speak to him. That's what he's saying. Bring your supplications. Make your requests known. And do it with thanksgiving. Think of all the gracious things he has done for you. Those things are the source of real joy. And with grateful heart, start bringing all your worries and struggles and requests before him. Let him know. Ask away. Now, I know it's sometimes kind of easy to think, but if he's present with us and he's kind of omniscient and he knows everything and he can act on us whenever he wants, what's the point of spending so much time in prayer? Why not spend more time doing practical things? Three reasons. One, because he told us to and he's God. Two, because it helps us. This is how we cast our cares how we hand them over, how we shed our burdens, by, by bringing them to him, handing them to him. And third, because it builds and fosters our unity. It's hard to hold a grudge against someone I'm praying with and for. And it's hard to do that when I hear them praying for me. It unites our hearts and minds in, in supplication. We need to be praying a lot this year. I know there's a lot of talking going on, a lot of whispering about so-and-so and, you know, where their mask is. I know there's a lot of amateur Internet research going on. Please don't send me your confirmation bias definitive studies. I don't need them. What I need and what you need and what we all need is more prayer. More hearts filled with thanksgiving and voices lifted up in supplication. Now as we finish, I want us to look at the result. Look at the result of this cascade of imperatives that Paul gives to this body struggling with division in their ranks that's hindering them from the gospel work. He says to them, be rejoicing, that's an imperative, in the Lord. Be reasonable with each other and before the world and be praying. And the result, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The crude force of these 
incredible imperatives of joy and reasonableness and prayer is the peace of God. The peace which he himself possesses, God's peace. The serenity and unity in which he lives, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that community in peace, will be ours. And the ideal here, idea here is, is plural. It's not just talking about the peace in my heart, but, but the peace this way, right? Yodia and Syntyche, who have been fighting, can be at peace. The church can be at peace. And they can get about the gospel work. And so can we, even in the midst of everything that's going on. As we head into this fall, let's be a church rejoicing, reasonable, and at prayer. It's everybody's responsibility here. He asked the, the fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. That's who he's talking to. That's all of us. All of you here, he says, let's get this done. This is what we need to be about. Let's be gospel partners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can look back at a letter written thousands of years ago to a little church on the other side of the world, and we're reading something that's written right into our lives. It speaks right into our circumstances, that speaks right to our hearts. Help us to be gospel partners to your glory. In your son's name, amen.